West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms podcast with Brian, Mike, and James. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Geek at Arms podcast, a podcast about three guys who share a lot of geeky hobbies and also a love for the Lord our God. I'm James, and hanging out with me, as always, are my buds, Mike and Brian. Guys, glad to finally be back in studio recording with you. Oh, so are we. Yeah, I've missed it. Listeners, we apologize that this podcast is uh, coming out a little bit later than we wanted it to, but for my house, we just got hit by bugs. All of us at one point were sick, and when we were supposed to record originally a few weeks ago, I was sitting at about 102, 103 degree fever. So, I mean, I could have came in, and everyone would have heard my last words, because then <laughs> I, I probably would have died in studio. I was going to you said bugs, and I, going? <laughs> I was going to go with, I was hoping for a story about locusts. <laughs> <laughs> I woke up, and red stuff was coming out of the faucet, and just bugs and frogs were everywhere inside the house. I'm like, huh, okay, it's getting a little Egyptian in here. <laughs> and our Egyptian listeners are like, too soon, too soon. <laughs> <laughs> but thankfully, everyone is healthy now things have been good these past couple of weeks things have been super busy and so much geeky stuff has happened since our last episode are you guys okay if we just jump straight into geek out let's go do for it because i got so much i want to cover but i've got to like try to keep myself at a small time frame so i'm just going to jump in uh, i recently finished up reading a trilogy of books by brian mcclellan called the powder mage trilogy And uh, these have been on my radar for a while now. I've had them on my Amazon list, and I was looking for something new to read. Finished reading a couple of books, and both of them were just kind of, I mean, they were okay, but they were not even going to mention them. One was even a Star Wars book, one of the newer Star Wars books, but just, just didn't click with me. So I was really wanting something good. I'd read a lot of great reviews about the Powder Mage trilogy, including a glowing review from uh, Brandon Sanderson. And uh, I last early December, I decided to finally pull the trigger and buy the first book called A Promise of Blood. I finished that book in just a matter of days. And I pretty much finished the trilogy and a book that was a collection of short stories set in the universe before the new year. And I really enjoyed McClellan's writing style. I enjoyed his pacing, how he kept three separate storylines decently interconnected. And it's a lot of fun. Think Black Powder Punk. Okay. Um, It's a very recognizable world, but while still being different enough to maintain that good fantasy vibe. Like I said, Black Powder Punk, it's set in like a revolutionary Napoleonic world. And while there are wizards and other magic users, uh, the big addition to the magical literary world are the powder mages. And these are people who can manipulate gunpowder by either ingesting it or exploding it mentally. And by doing that, it gives them a variety of powers based on their individual strengths, Uh, super strength, stamina, speed, uh, the ability to influence and shoot a bullet a mile away with pinpoint accuracy while using a matchlock rifle. Whoa. Um, yeah, and so, it, yeah, so that's the biggest fantasy right there. You mean being accurate with a musket? <laughs> but uh, much of the book focuses on three characters, with the main protagonist being a man named uh, Tomas, a lifelong soldier. He's the king's field marshal, head of the military for his country. He's head of the powder mages, 
And in the first chapter of the first book, he leads a coup d'etat, which sees all of the monarchy and 90% of the nobility imprisoned and later executed. Hooray! Yeah, it hits the ground <laughs> running. It was jarring. It's like, all right, that's where this book is going. Let's just dive in. From there, it sees Tomas and others fight to protect their country from enemies without within, all while trying to create a stable democratic government. And like I said, I finished it so fast. I was like, oh, there's no more. Now I'm sad. <laughs> so When's the next one coming out? Unfortunately, it's not. That, that wrapped up the trilogy. Now, there are other books set in the same universe that I have not gotten to yet uh, that take place either before or after this main trilogy. I'm going to check them out eventually, but, I mean, if you haven't read them yet, put it on your list. It's going to be a great read. So for my next geek out, uh, it's basically going to be a whole bunch of Star Wars. So buckle in. First off, <laughs> The Mandalorian. Have you guys, oh, seen, yes. you guys seen it? Yes, of yeah. course. We could do an entire episode about this show. <laughs> I think maybe we should at some point. I, I really think we should as well. For right now, because I'm, I'm willing to bet that just about everybody under the sun has seen it, I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say, it's not even that big of a limb, but it's some of the best Star Wars we've seen in years. Yeah. Uh, without hesitation, I'll say that. Yeah. And that's all I'll say for right now. We will delve deeper into this incredible show at another time, but absolutely love the Mandalorian and cannot wait for seasons two, three, four, however many we get. We just want more. A part of me is a little conflicted on that though. I mean, cause I'm, I'm thinking how can they keep up the pace of consistently being this good? Now, granted, we've only had a few episodes, but I mean, it just, I don't know. It just mm -hmm. felt like a, a wonderful lived in gritty star Wars world. And I, I want it. I want there to be more, but I don't want there to be so much more that it, it outlives its prime, if that makes any sense. Oh, no, no. I don't want it to go on like Supernatural has. And nothing against Supernatural, nothing <laughs> against the rabid amount of fans that it has garnered over the years. But I would much rather have quality over quantity. But as good as this show is and where they're taking the story and also how short the seasons have been yeah. – we could at least get two more and still maintain a high quality of storytelling. Yeah, but while we're here, I think I need to make a hard stand when we have a lot of the fans referring to Mando and Baby Yoda. We really need to get the nomenclature correct. I mean, this is Star Wars. They have names. His name is not Mando. He's a man of the Mandalorian culture. <laughs> That's not where I right? thought you were going with this. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's Baby Yoda. The internet has spoken. <laughs> Lucasfilm got out late on this. The internet has... I have spoken. I knew that was going to come said. up in this time. <laughs> <laughs> I have spoken. Well, now, somebody, somebody put forth Yodito. I kind of liked that one. Yodito. I'll do that. Okay. Is there an explanation for that name or just that it's cute? In Spanish, you, Ito is what you put at the end of something to make it diminutive. And uh, he's a diminutive Yoda. Yep, so. uh, all right. Yodito. Yodito. And it's got kind of a... A Latin kind of flavor to the whole thing anyway, so. I'm picturing the little alien on a bag of chips. Try new Yoditos. <laughs> now in regular and spicy salsa flavor. Now available at Taco Bell. <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to say that that was, that was somehow a derivative of the child's name in the Lone Wolf and Cub narratives. But, I mean, because really this is what this I is. I would have been very impressed with myself. <laughs> Once again, these are all things we will delve into 
at a much deeper level at an upcoming podcast. It might have to be the next podcast. We'll see. <laughs> uh, next, in continuing the Star Wars streak, I am in the middle of playing the Xbox game Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order. And oh. I got it for Christmas, and I put The Outer Worlds, which I was playing, on hold. I was like, as much as I'm enjoying this game, I'm putting it on hold. I'm putting it aside for right now, and I'm putting in Jedi Fallen Order because I really want to get into this. And I have not been disappointed. It has been a fun game. Uh, I've never played the game Dark Souls, but I'm led to understand that the gameplay is a lot like it as far as how you fight against one or a group of enemies. And uh, instead of a sword, of course, you have a lightsaber. You play a young man who was a Padawan, fought in the Clone Wars, but survived the Jedi Purge and is on his own and is hiding out. He's just trying to remain unnoticed. Of course, that doesn't work out, and now he's on the run, and... The story evolves from there into something larger and a kind of a grand galactic quest. And while it is fun, I do have a couple of complaints. One is that he has the Force, which he uses, and as he remembers, he reestablishes his connection to the Force. He relearns how to use various Force powers. But he has a lightsaber. And the thing is, if the only t- it's like with, ha- with having a hammer. If the only tool you have is a, is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If all the only tool that you have is a lightsaber then everything just looks like it everything looks like a stormtrooper wants to be sliced in half um i would say if i had a lightsaber everything would look like something that needs to be cut with a lightsaber trimming the hedges yeah <laughs> mike um, let's be honest if we had lightsabers between the three of uh, us we would have on average fewer than the normal collective limbs i uh we yeah yeah <laughs> yeah but anyway um one area that I think was a big missed opportunity was the style of game that it is. It does, you know, turn into a young man who's going from remaining hidden to relearning his connection to the forest and trying to find out what happened to other Padawans and maybe even hopes of reestablishing the Jedi. I wish it had been less swinging lightsabers, less grand quest, and more focused on a smaller style of gameplay more about staying hidden, keeping your head low, more about staying one step ahead of the Empire, more like The Fugitive. Mm, I like think, big gains in a small world rather than, rather than small gains in a big world. Exactly. I would have loved that. And I think this would have been the perfect opportunity to style a game like that. And uh, now true, it may not have appealed to the larger gaming community as a whole, but... I think it would have been great. I think it would have been a fantastic game where we look at like the individual person, what drives them, let them see what the world is becoming around them. It could have stayed in a more urban setting instead of going to various jungle planets. And I mean, think, think like a Star Wars game set in the style of Enemy of the State, The Fugitive, and, and so many more. Well, something like Thief, kind of an, an action mystery stealth game. Yeah. I actually never played Thief, but... Oh, it's a good game. Yeah, along that style, I think the possibility would have been fun. So whether or not they ever decide to make that game, I don't know, but I'll keep my hopes up. Uh, Finally, my last geek out, like I'm sure everyone else has, saw Star Wars Rise of Skywalker. Is that out yet? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, no, it, uh, it comes out in 2021. You're fine. You're okay. I moderate a Star Wars board. I I know when the movies come out. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I liked it. 
I liked it. I walked out of the theater happy. I was satisfied. Enough said. So that I mean, re- I could go on a bit more. I mean, that's. I mean, <laughs> I thought it was. I mean, yeah, I liked it too. I, I yeah, I'll say that. I, I liked it. There are some people that would complain about the the plot holes that that the movie had, and um, yeah, they tried to cram a lot into a film. Yeah, uh, I think that they wrote bigger than they could film, and you know, fine, it has holes. So does Swiss cheese, and I put that on my sandwich, too, and <laughs> like go. it. There I mean, it's fine. Yeah, I mean, it definitely hits the ground running. Well, not so much running as sprinting. And as I put it to someone who asked me how it was, it's a 10-pound movie in a 5-pound bag. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What? So just be what? prepared. What's funny is when you say it hit the ground running or at least uh, skipping, um, <laughs> that was in one of the things race. that actually— Right. Well, it, it was the atmosphere skipping— and the hyperspace skipping, for some reason, like, I understand it is an irrational nerd nerve for it to irritate. But still, when I saw that, I'm like, wow, that flies in the face of so much of what was established. Like, this is a difficult thing to do, but, you know, we're doing it, you know, pretty easily anyway when any average person should have, you know, after you disable all the safeties in your hyperdrive. But do you know what? Like, that doesn't matter. Why did it bug me? In guys? my head cannon, Why did it bug me? I don't know. But in my head cannon, I thought, you know, it's been 20 years, 20, 30 years since uh, those original movies. They've had time to invent new Navic computers that can do this kind of thing. What bothered me was we're effectively hyper jumping to a random location six times. How do we always wind up on a planet? You'd think that most they, of the time you would just wind up in space. <laughs> because if they did it inside of a gas giant, then those credits would have rolled a lot faster. No, what you don't realize <clears throat> is they were still on the same planet. We were confused because you saw a, a different ecosystem and a different landscape. Um, and well, usually Star Wars Star planets Wars only have one going. ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No, They exactly. actually were in the same spot. They were skipping realities. <laughs> and the reason they were skipping realities, it's not that the Falcon is you know twenty thirty years older than you know the last time we saw it, and it has new navigation computers. It's that it's had twenty to thirty years since the last time the safety features have you know have had a chance to be inspected, and so it's redlining all over the place, and it's it's just flying who knows where. I mean that needs to seriously get in for inspection and recertification. <laughs> It's a flying OSHA violation everywhere it goes. I have used that plot mechanic before, believe it or not. <laughs> so. Honestly, it could have flown right next to a Star Trek starbase, and I'd have been perfectly okay. I'm like, yep, that, that seems right. <laughs> That's about right. Well, that well there was probably to, a TARDIS in the scene somewhere also. So. <laughs> Some VFX artists put it in the movie somewhere. Somewhere inside the doctor's chasing it for a second. Right, stop that, stop that. <laughs> But it's one of those things that I keep going back to the thing that that Finn had said when they were sinking into the to the pebble sand. I was like, Ray, I have to tell you. And I I really wanted it to be like, I need to tell you, if I don't make it out of this, go back to my computer and erase all of my fanfic. I've been writing crossovers (laughs) where I ship Poe with Lieutenant Roe in Star Trek and the Poe Roe romance. So when Poe was like, so what were you talking about? Uh, nothing. 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 No, no, and nope. that is now in my head canon, definitely. <laughs> nothing to do about being force sensitive. <laughs> oh. So anyway, that will wrap up my Star Wars heavy geek out. Uh, who wants to go next? 
I think it's my turn. Go ahead, mate. Well, as uh, I have mentioned in the past, I'm now playing in a regular D&D campaign, which, first of all, is just really nice to be able to roleplay uh, as a player, first of all, and regularly, secondly. And last week, we had just this really crazy uh, situation that I promised I was going to talk about a little bit. Uh, so Peter put us in this planar overlay where the dreamlands were crossing over with the real world. And uh, as part of this, we had to be really disciplined in our minds because anything that we thought about could become reality. And he demonstrated oh, no. it with early on with uh, our flan-obsessed dreamlands cat. This glob of pudding was forming and following him around behind the back of his head. He didn't even know it was there. So we get into the, the big fight at the end of the, the session and I'm, I remember the, the flan thing, and I was like, okay, I concentrate really hard and imagine a bottomless pit below this guy's feet. And Peter says, uh, okay, roll Arcana. So I crit it. Oh, <laughs> and, nice. It's <laughs> like, wow, the Looney Tunes plan worked. Uh, <laughs> did, that is so amazing. Did the person over the pit not fall until they looked down and then looked back up <laughs> uh no he didn't go that far and but uh hold up a little sign that said help <laughs> unfortunately i tested it on a minion and peter set the dc like at 25 or something so i was like i probably shouldn't use my entire next turn to try that on the big guy because who knows what could happen if i miss it mm-hmm. right but <laughs> i just Props to Peter for being a good enough game master to just go ahead and roll with that. Saying yes and is always a great thing. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, uh, it sounds like rolled. an amazing game. Oh, it's it's a lot of fun. I've been having a, a good time. Fifth edition isn't quite as interesting as fourth edition for a fighter. You tend to just, okay, well, I roll my attack, and then I roll my attack, and then I'm done. And, you know, that's bleh. But uh, I've been making up for it by playing a lot in the uh, strategic, political, and diplomatic layer of the game. Nice. Um, and Peter wrote a blog post on this that he was surprised at how quickly and effectively we engaged with uh, uh, the politics You know, right out of the gate. Oh, they're already trying to affect the world on a, this grand level. I'm like, I thought that was the point. I mean, if you want me to just go ahead and whip stuff, I can do that, but you make me a diplomat i'm going to go be diplomatic <laughs> so it's been it's been a really really fun game and he's a he's a good gm i'm looking forward to seeing how it progresses when i was listening to the uh, the world building episode that saving the game did on it i was just doing the ooh oh the like audibly as i'm walking along i really don't care <laughs> what anybody else on the sidewalk thinks i'm like brian is going to have so much fun with this world and i have been see i've also got talked into playing uh, Magic the Gathering Arena, mostly by the people in the Saving the Game Discord channel. It's a nicer, smoother presentation than Magic the Gathering Online, which I'd played previously, but it's been 10, uh, it's been longer than that, it's been like 15 years since I was like really had my head in Magic, and they've changed the rules since then. (laughs) Yeah, you said something about that online, and I'm like, uh uh-oh. Well, you know how we play where Damage goes on the stack, yeah. and then you can respond to that. It doesn't do that anymore. Damage just goes. And so if you're waiting to like block with your, your guy, damage goes on the stack, and then you tap him to do some more damage, that doesn't work anymore. And I keep hmm. screwing that up, and I'm like, oh, crud, I lost my creature again because I didn't remember that damage thing. Now, here's a question. Is that just in Arena, or is that apply to the normal card game as well? 
that's the new normal official rules as of like 2011 or something. Oh gosh. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So if you ever uh, play it at pre-release again or something, well, like many comic book shops, they do like a Friday night magic and they do a lot of pre-releases mm-hmm. and other type of tournaments. And I'd really been thinking about going and trying one. And especially with the newer, like fairy tale medieval fantasy cards that they've been coming out with mm-hmm. recently, those looked really cool. And I thought that would be fun. But I don't want to get there and find a judge who's like, hey, it's been a while since I've done this. What's changed? Everything. Okay. <laughs> just going to go ahead and take my cards and go home then. It still works basically the same way. Things like the combat doesn't hit the stack anymore. And there were some other like small timing uh, changes. But by and large, play the same way as you always did, except the combat tricks work differently now. Okay. So is is that game like when I was still when I was a older teen and college student? Is it is it still a gateway to the occult, or or was that rule revised? <laughs> oh yeah, there was <laughs> there was just a a release a couple of weeks ago about the, these things are still gateways to the occult. You know, like anthropy, vampirism, uh, uh, cyberpunk, Magic the Gathering, L O T R. You know. Right, yeah. Uh, <laughs> there was a, a thing going around on Twitter that Christians, tag yourself in as many of these as you are. It's like, oh, uh, yeah. All of them except the vampirism, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I had been reading a book called, I don't remember who recommended this to me, but if you're out there listening, thank you. It's called Engineering in History by a whole lot of people. Kirby, Withington, Darling, and Kilgore, which... Awesome name, Kilgore. I wish that was my name. Uh, <laughs> but it's uh, it's kind of an overview of how engineering and building techniques have progressed over the course of history. And it's really been beneficial in forming the development of a Bronze Age fantasy of manners novel I've been trying to write for 15, 20 years and failing. <laughs> but just getting the ideas of, okay, well, this is how plumbing worked in you know, Mesopotamia, this is how iron making progressed and what had to happen in order for these particular sailing techniques to to arise. It's a really interesting book. It's so kind of dry. Say, uh, when you say the history of engineering, I mean, you are talking going back, like how far? Are we talking Stone Age, Bronze Age, uh, and right up through the present? Or what, how, how big it, is the scope? Uh, they start with the rise of agriculture. And I am currently in the chapter about uh, locomotives and railroads. Can so. you include a link for this in the show notes? Because you really grabbed my attention. <laughs> uh, I certainly too. can. Good. It's not as deep in any of those areas as I would like, because obviously it's spanning 6,000 years of, uh, of engineering history. But uh, in terms of getting a, a broad view and just spurring some ideas... And it's got a, a decent bibliography if you wanted to go deeper into some particular uh, topic. You can look up the books that they're referencing. I think that's all that you can hope for when you have a broad scope kind of text like that. Right. Unless you want it to be, you know, 2,500 pages, which this is not. <laughs> well, even 2,500 pages wouldn't be enough, really. Uh, but I, I enjoyed the bits about uh, the problems encountered in moving the large steely. There's one that was moved from Egypt to Rome, and then in the, I want to say the 1600s, it was moved again from one place in Rome to another, and that that second process was described in great depth, and all of the uh, rope techniques and the, the different leverage and stuff that they had to do to be able to move it without breaking it, and you wonder, 
the Egyptians brought that thing down from a quarry from the upper Nile in a boat and somehow moved it. How in the heck? <laughs> yeah. Of course. Uh, so it's, it's a really interesting book. And it's interesting that they point out things like uh, the horse and cart was the primary method of moving freight from, you know, ancient Greece until the railroad. Nothing wow. changed in several thousand years. And then all of a sudden the entire world just transformed, which is like, you know, that's interesting. No technological progress for thousands of years in that particular particular application. And that's pretty much everything that I had to talk about. What are you geeking out about, Mike? Uh, like you gentlemen, I have been watching The Mandalorian and Rise of the Skywalker. But uh, lately I've been kind of looking back at one of the projects that I had a couple of years ago. You may remember that I was doing a project where I read all of the Italian fencing books that I had spanning a broad swath of time and read them pretty much back to back, except for taking a, a few breaks. And I found myself you now two years after the fact going, oh, I remember that I ran, ran across this idea. And when I'm talking to somebody like, oh, yes, I know who said that. It was, oh, wait, was that Fabrice that said that? Was that Capafero that said that? Was that, dang it, which one was it? Uh, and so what I decided to do is just going forward, I'm not going to go back and reread all of those books in a row right now. Uh, but I started keeping a reading journal. <laughs> no, no, no. So you should that, absolutely go read all of those again, starting today. I don't have the energy or the brain space <laughs> for that right now. Like, I mean, I, I have no doubt I'm going to reread these again at some point. But uh, what I decided to do is just keep a journal of the things that I'm reading now, uh, especially in regards to historical fencing. Like, I'm always reading new articles that are coming out in the... Journal of Early Modern Studies, or, you know, Ken Monshine puts out something new, I'll go ahead and read that and, you know, kind of document the things that I think that are interesting, so that when I come back, I can say, oh, yeah, I, I read this, and here's, here's what I noted, here's who said it, and here's the page on which I can find it. So if I do come up in conversation, yeah, I know that's weird that I say that this comes up in conversation, but it, just, just remember who I run with, though. <laughs> just remember that. <laughs> So uh, and it's been fun because I bought a journal that was not uh, entirely practical in terms of like, oh, this is the best binding or this. I, I got one that I thought just looked like an ancient book, like not one that is actually looking like an ancient book. But one, if you said to a, a Hollywood prop master, make me a book that looks like it's a thousand years old and they would make something to look like that on screen. So it's all. Uh, leather stitched, which is an impractical way to do a binding, leather stretches. But it's also got this nice watercolor paper that they've stained. I mean, it looks like tea stained paper when I'm making it. And then they have like these frayed edges and it just looks so good. And it feels so good to write in because the paper has such a wonderful scratchy texture when you use a fine point pen. So yeah, I'm really digging my journal, and I might think about keeping other reading journals for anything that I do longer projects on. And I'll include a link to where I got it in the show notes. Cool. Because it looks great, it smells great, and it's impractical to write in in a couple of respects, just because it's really loosely bound, and there are no lines on it, so it's for a particular kind of nerd. So if, if this is your thing, you know, it's yours, but I... I understand why it's not practical from a bookbinding perspective. All right. 
So we've talked about uh, Star Wars Episode Nine: The Emperor's New Groove. So I won't, <laughs> I won't recap that. But our family's been playing a lot more board games lately. Some of that has to do with the winter months. And I got my wife Ex Libris for Christmas, partly based on your recommendation, James. And I am liking it very well, thank you. My wife is liking it more. <laughs> so for those of you who haven't listened to our back issues, I'll just do a quick recap that it is a, I would say, light to midweight uh, worker placement game. So you have three pawns and you're deciding what you want your pawns to do on your turn to accomplish the task of getting the best book collection in town. The mayor has decided that there is one category of banned books, one category of special attention books, that you want more of these, you get more points for them, you get negative points for banned books, and then you have your own personal emphasis of what kind of book you get extra bonus points for. And so you are drafting cards from various locations from where you place your workers in order to create uh, the best book collection in town. And the aesthetics of this game are just wonderful. And on top of it just being a fun worker placement game, the book titles are witty. It's hard to understand if you just, or at least for me, to read the rules and understand it. But once you play one or two turns, it's like, yes, I've got this. Okay, that's, of course, but that's what it means. So it, it's easy to pick up after you've seen a couple of turns and easy to explain. So it's been such a wonderful play experience. We've played it a number of times. And so thank you, James, for your explanation. Um, just in the theme of collecting books is a very easy sell for our family. And on top of that, I also got her a Time Stories for Christmas. And it sounds like I gave her presents for me. Um, that's not what's <laughs> happening here. We're married for a reason, folks, because we, we, we both love games. And I got her... A, an edition of Time Stories, uh, one of the expansions, Lumen Fidei. And we have just played through that the other night. I think we're going to give it another couple of run-throughs because there are some items that we want to collect that I think are leading up to an end game in the very last of the series. But after this one, we have played through all but the last in the White series. So we've been, we've been loving our Time Stories. How many stories is that? Pause while I check Twitter. <laughs> uh, we've played through eight so far, so we have the ninth yet to do. So, And it's really fascinating because uh, Lumen Fidei had one of the most fun puzzles to solve. And it took us at the table probably 20, 40 minutes just trying different arrangements to see if we can figure out the pattern of what was going on. And I think it was the best puzzle since Asylum, which is included in the base game. And for those of you who have not uh, chimed into an earlier episode where we explain time stories, just real quick, it is a cooperative narrative-based game that functions very much like a visual choose-your-own-adventure. And all of the settings are very different in terms of that it provides similar mechanics uh, across the various settings, but the settings are very different from one another. And there are various nuances that make each play different, but they still keep a very similar vibe in terms of the choose-your-own-adventure visual narrative cooperative storytelling that I, I, I found so wonderful about these. And mostly that's my, uh, that's my geek out, which 
I now realize other than the journal has just been kind of a recap of things that we've talked about previously, so sorry. <laughs> Side note, I was thinking, have I talked about the game Ex Libre? I looked it up real quickly. Twice. I don't think I did. I talked about the game Biblios. Oh, that explains why I was confused, because it's like, that doesn't sound familiar. <laughs> oh. It's the same style of play, except one of them is set in like a gnomish village, and one is set in a medieval monastery. But both are about collecting <laughs> books. Well, all right. Then I absolutely do not feel bad about bringing that up on the podcast again. <laughs> based on your recommendation of a very different game, I bought Ex Libris. <laughs> and funny enough, they both have the exact same score on BoardGameGeek.com. That sounds oh, like a fantastic no. game. I'll buy something else entirely. <laughs> <laughs> all right well guys i think that'll wrap up geek out and that is going to take us to our final movie in our animated film club series and when we were discussing what animated movies we wanted to include this was one that all three of us were like yeah we got to talk about this one absolutely it deserves to be here and that is spider-man into the spider-verse and this one kind of breaks with the movies we've looked at traditionally. A lot of the movies we've looked at have been well-loved cult classics and favorited amongst a lot of people. Uh, they've been older movies. Forbidden Planet, uh, we've done a lot of 80s movies. And then we get to Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, a movie which came out in December of 2018. So, I mean, we're barely a year out from this movie being released but we had to include it because yeah. well, and because retro rewind was about to come and beat us up for uh, <laughs> stepping on their thing. So, like, oh, okay, we'll do man. it. We'll do a new movie. You know what? Yeah. I think we could take them. <laughs> no, 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 no. I've, I've seen Francisco. That dude could take me. I, that dude could take me. <laughs> but anyway, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. So many times the words, a modern classic get used a lot to describe movies and a lot of times incorrectly this time it's a yeah, fitting I'm, description of this movie i feel like i'm gonna reserve some judgment for about 10 years as to whether we're gonna call this one a classic or not but i mean it, i think that we've given it enough time to see like okay am i just excited that this cool movie came out or is this really a movie that merits some discussion and in the month that we had decided to do this, I felt my enthusiasm cool a little bit and say, you know, are we making the right decision? And then when I popped it in again to take notes, oh my gosh, I realized why I thought this film was so worthy of discussion. Yeah. And for me, when we decided on this movie, I've been looking forward to watching it again. I can watch it anytime because it's currently on Netflix. But when it came time to actually sit down and watch it, I was like, all right, here we go. I was excited and I was happy to get to watch it again. We have a friend that's currently living with us. Uh, he's travel nursing in the in the Boston area. And you know, he said, well, what are you guys doing this afternoon? And I said, well, I have to watch Into the Spider-Verse to take notes on it for my podcast. Like, I, I will watch that movie any day. <laughs> yeah. So I know that we covered Into the Spider-Verse in an earlier episode. Like quickly as a geek out, didn't we? Yeah, I think so. It was just uh, it would have been about a year ago, in fact. I'm going to hop onto geekatarms.com. 
Speaking oh, of Retro you know, Rewind, right? I'll do like for Retro Rewind listeners, episode 248. <laughs> <laughs> like they are apt to do anytime they mention oh. any movie at all. Okay, uh, then I'll do this one. For you Retro Rewind listeners, this is Retro Rewind podcast number 7,852. <laughs> I've looked ahead into their future catalog. It takes them a while to get this one. I, at least, you know, 20 years. <laughs> we have said some things. Episode 16. 2016. Interestingly, that was the first time we also mentioned The Outer Worlds. Oh, oh wow. I forgot where I was going with that because it took so long to actually uh, look up what, information that I'm not going to use. <laughs> what you were, were going to do is say that, like the Retro Rewind podcast, if you want to go back and listen, uh, we reference this in a geek out in episode 16 of the Geek at Arms podcast. You said it, so I don't have to. What? Oh, dang it. Sorry, I stole it. I <laughs> no, I don't, I don't care. It's all right. No, no, okay. It sounds it's good. Right. Can't believe you didn't play X Libras. All right. So, where do so In another podcast? Reaching <laughs> halt. <laughs> We might have to rename this podcast Down the Rabbit Trail because we keep. <laughs> <sighs> As you said, Mike, we have covered this movie before, but, you know, let's get back into it. Uh, where do we want to start on Spider Man Into the Spider Verse? Well, let's start with why, again, why this film, particularly, that we're interested in, in reviewing because, I mean, Spider Man has been rehashed. So many times he's been rebooted three times just in in film. Uh, yes, uh, in recent decades, at least three or four times in cartoons and television. Yet this movie is still interesting and still, I think, groundbreaking in a lot of ways. What is it that makes it a better or a uh, still relevant, even though we've seen Spider-Man reborn so many times? Like you said, at this point, we all know the origin story of Spider-Man. We don't need to be told the origin story of Spider-Man anymore. This movie decides to tell us the origin story of seven Spider-Mans. <laughs> uh, spider, not even mans. You can't even say Spider-Person because we got a Spider-Pig in there. Spy and a Spider-Robot. Spider, yeah, so we've got all kinds of... Do you know what? It shows us multiple origin stories of the Spideys. There we go. Spideys is our all-inclusive term, I think. And it's very meta because they're very aware of what they're doing. It's like, all right, I'm going to tell you this again for the last time. Yeah. So, yeah, we don't need an intro story, but yet this one still felt fresh. And I think it maybe it's because they respected the audience in saying, okay, you know the origin story of Spidey. And at the same time, they give you just a quick refresh if you are not terribly familiar with the variety of of spideys that are out there which i wasn't familiar with many of these iterations of of spider-man so to have the quick little recap that both respects the audience and also make sure that everyone is caught up to speed it felt fresh it felt right and it didn't waste time on screen and they made each one uniquely entertaining in a specific way that was appropriate to the particular character that they were introducing Mm -hmm. Um, so you're still getting like, we literally heard that story seven times in one movie and yet every single time it was still entertaining and fresh. Yeah. With the origin story and with the movie overall, very tight storytelling. There's not really mm -hmm. any wasted moments in this film. 
It's all very tight, all very neat and planned out, and they did a great job on the script. And the editing. You know, but yes. Bar none, I think the best part about this movie on a technical uh, side is the editing. Um, and that's not something I would usually say because you never really notice the editing, but in this movie I think it was so very well cut. It was really impressive. Well, and it's, it's interesting that you say that the technical merits, because I, I think that, yes, the story was good. Yes, the characters were good. The structure and pacing was all good. But for me, that isn't what makes this film experience for me. Like, we have lots of superhero movies. What really, for me, makes this film amazing is that it has such a brilliant use of aesthetics and such creative artistic styles blended together that really create an immersive experience. Oh, completely agree. I've said this before in reference to this movie. I believe this is the closest we're going to get to a pure comic book experience in a movie. Mm -hmm. In the pacing, the artwork, the perfect mix of humor and serious undertones origin stories, great fights and battles and consequences. It all came together in a wonderful film. A movie like this doesn't come along hardly ever, and I think that's why it's important that we include it in this podcast. And I think that you hit on something really interesting, James, is that you say that this is the best comic book movie that that we've had or that we may have. And I think that there are so many things that they did with the comic book-like aesthetic that were so right for this film on screen. There were a lot of things they used, such as the halftones, like the, you know, kind of like the dot-like shading, uh, where you could see dots that fill in and create the color toning that we have. Mm -hmm. The word bubbles, the comic book-style panel framing. And the panel framing is something that can go horribly wrong in a movie, Because with a comic book, it works because you can direct your attention to one, then direct your attention to the other, and then direct your attention to the other. I've seen films where they try to use this comic book panel idea before, but they don't know what to do with the audience's focus. They don't know where the audience's focus is going to be when all three or all four are moving. Yet this film had a brilliant method of making sure that your attention was drawn to the appropriate places. They also had a lot of layered filters, like the RBG filters, which were usually used in the background areas so that your attention was focused away from it. But it still created this printed style of coloring that made it feel like, a, you, know, like you were reading a comic book. I think one thing that lent to it was, and this actually may get brought up when we talk about the effects used in this animated movie, but when it got to the scenes where they were firing up the super collider and we saw those rays of circular cosmic energy beams coming out of it, I'm like, where have I seen that before? And I remember that's what's kind of referred to as the Kirby effect or Kirby dots that were used a lot by Jack Kirby in comics in the 60s when he wanted to show explosions or energy from ray guns or cosmic energy or outer space phenomena. Like, they're using the Kirby effect, and it looks wonderful. You know, and it's interesting because there's so many things that they use from comics that generally don't convey well on screen. Like, for example, when they punch somebody or something, would ha- they'd have the snap or the pow or, you know, the fist bump or there's the dap. 
And those things can really look campy. I mean, if you remember the 70 eras Batman, they punch somebody and pow, mm-hmm. to make it look like a comic book. But that didn't work. I mean, it I mean, it sort of created the aesthetic of since they were going for campy. But you don't need a pow because there are so many other things with a visual and audio medium that create the pow. Yeah. Like you have the actors do the stunt and you have the sound effect and you have the reaction to let you know that they hit hard. You don't need that when you're animating it. But they did it, and it wasn't in an intrusive way. It made it feel like you were, again, looking at a comic book, and they just had, they knew how to use it sparingly and to use it for an accent and to remind you that you're watching a comic book film. A lot of times they kept that in the background, too, whereas in a comic book, your compositing order is you've got the the art, and then the letters always go on top of that. And so your pow is always going to be, unless the penciler has created a space for it, which they often do and the the good ones always do but it's always going to go on top of the art and in this case since it was a secondary feature and because they had complete control over their compositing process and their compositing order a lot of times those word bubbles were going on underneath the action instead of on top of it which kept it from being intrusive and campy Mm -hmm. i think i think a perfect example of this is in the scene where Peter and Miles, they've stolen Doc Ock's computer. Peter is absconded with a bagel as well. They're running away from the gun-toting scientists. He takes the computer from Miles, gives Miles the bagel, looks at it, tosses it at the scientist, and it hits a scientist in the background, in the head. And as it hits, it bounces off of his head, and you see a little line go down to the guy's head, and the word bagel appear in the background. <laughs> I noticed it, and I laughed out loud so hard. And I'm like, why isn't everyone else laughing? That was perfect. <laughs> and yeah, fit, I actually didn't see that until the last time I watched it. And it fit perfectly because they brought up the bagel like three times. Play it cool, selecting a bagel. Is that Spider-Man? I get that a lot. Stop him. And somebody else, he took a bagel. <laughs> he took a bagel. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Well, another area where I thought the sparing nature of it really worked well to accentuate the storytelling was when Miles was doing his first failed leap. And so he jumps off of that building. And as he falls, you see the, ah, written on the screen as he's on his way down. But fast forward in the film, when he does take the leap of faith successfully, there is a similar shot where he's swinging upwards. And as he's going up, it says, and I'm like, oh, that is just a wonderful accent to flash back to that earlier scene. And again, it works because you're using it sparingly and you're trying to tie ideas together. And it's not jarring at all. When you watched it and you're in the moment, you didn't question it one bit, did you? It felt not natural. It felt completely yeah. natural for this type of movie. And I also think it helped that they, they linked it explicitly to Miles' powers. Like he wasn't getting word bubbles when he was preparing to go to school. He wasn't getting them... Uh, when he was talking to Gwen, they started appearing when he got bitten by the spider and he's saying, why are my thoughts so loud? And <laughs> that's when it starts showing up when he's starting to be affected by the spider bite. Um, and they're always there when when he's doing comic booky things. I feel like there was more of them, more word bubbles and more effects like that around Spider Pig. But I was thinking that there should be more because of all of them, he's the most cartoony. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there were more around him or not, but I think I I see what you mean. And I have to watch it for a third time this weekend. 
<laughs> and you don't mind one bit, do you? Not at all. <laughs> I do have a question for the two of you gentlemen. I looked for the answer to this. I, I couldn't find it. When we're, especially when we're talking about some of the, the inking styles or the drawing styles, was there any of this that was, I, what, is the, what is the digital equivalent of hand inks? Because I know that you can take a pen and you can accent some of the art with, you know, with, by painting it. Did they, use, did they actually do anything that was hand-drawn on the characters' faces, or did it just no, look I, good enough that it reminded me that it looked like it could have been hand-done? I read that they went over many of the digital prints, and I don't know what program they used, but they hand-drew some of the lines or added to them to give it more of a hand-drawn feel. Okay, because yeah, I and was looking a, at it. There's a technique that they can do. You could hand-draw the face and then link that to... Uh, the 3D model so that you'd have a, a hand-drawn texture on a CG rendered face and so you get kind of the best of the both worlds and then they would go through after that and do a little bit more compositing trickery to break it up a little bit put the the half toning and the the hatching on and then they go over that at the very end and do a little bit more just adding a little bit of uh, hand-drawn chaos to it um, and there were some effects that were some things that were actually hand-drawn, like the the last explosion of the particle accelerator, I'm fairly sure was just a, a uh, traditionally animated hand-drawn explosion. I was wondering because it looked exactly like that that is what they had done, is use the CG and use the hand-drawn because it felt so organic and human while obviously being not entirely. So I thought it was a brilliant way to bring that feel to it. And I keep saying feel a lot, but no, it, this felt like it had a real, wow, I'm falling no, apart. No, no, I'm with you. It, this was a very visceral movie. I mean, it, yeah. it felt like you could reach out and touch it off the screen. Yeah. One other thing that they did on the on the technical end that I thought was, was really brilliant is that they sort of re-implemented ideas of multiplane camera techniques which back in 2D animation, what they would do is they would take multiple levels of celluloid and suppose you have something swinging across a background, they can move different objects in the background at different rates because they're actually different pieces of celluloid moving past the camera. And they, they took digital layers to, to re-implement a lot of these same ideas of multiplane camera techniques also to to really mirror the 2D traditional cell animated aesthetics while still implementing it in a 3D environment and again just bravo to these to these filmmakers two little pieces of trivia i wanted to bring up cuz you bring up the animators apparently this movie had up to 180 animators working on it and because it's in you know new york there's a lot of subways and a lot of trains and brian if you do watch this for a third time uh, do this. Apparently, if you hit pause anytime a train goes by, you're going to see a different Stan Lee. Oh, because, no. oh, really? Because all the animators wanted to animate Stan Lee, so he's in almost every single train. Oh, my God. <laughs> we need that confirmed. <laughs> <laughs> well, and what's even uh, less known than that is if you go to New York, there actually is a Stan Lee on every single subway train. There was the broader New York cloning initiative, and they were actually taking <laughs> and right. uh, that, that was the one person who made it. 
All right, we've kind of been all over these notes here. Is there is there something you wanted to jump in, Brian? Anything that we because we've been talking a lot about the aesthetic, the the marriage of two D, three D. Let's uh, talk about the styles of the individual characters and how they managed to to fuse those together, because you've got each of these characters has his or her own particular animation style from you know Peter Porker, the actual cartoon cartoon through people like Peter B. and Gwen, who are kind of more realistic looking, and then the Spider-Man noir in black and white, and they manage to, each of them has their own look and their own style, and yet they still manage to all be in the same scene and look like they belong together. I thought that was really amazing, and I still don't really understand how it worked. By all merits, it really shouldn't. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, so many of these things were just a hodgepodge of ideas thrown onto the screen. And somehow, instead of it being a hodgepodge, they took these various animation styles and made a quilt out of it. And it was just a thing to behold. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people have talked, have pointed out the variable frame rates, um, how Miles, when he starts out, has a, a low being animated on, probably on fours. Um, and... Both of the Peters being very smooth, and Gwen also uh, animated at full speed. And one thing I noticed was that Miles' frame rate actually changes based on what he's doing. Yeah. Uh, because he's really fluid in the uh, the graffiti scene. When he's he's in his art and he's doing something that he's really passionate about, that steppy animation goes away. I thought that was hmm. an interesting look at his state of mind through the animation technique being applied to him. I like that. So when he was talking with his father, his frame rate was noticeably jumpy. Yes. It's it's linked to his his confidence in himself and his his self-perception, I think. And when he gets to the scene as they're as they're fleeing the the, the research facility, they're animating him on twos and fours at that point while they're still animating Peter on at a normal frame rate. Mhm. Uh, we've been talking about animating on fours and twos and fours. Uh, maybe not all of our audience uh, is aware of what we're talking about. Do you, do you want to give a brief explanation of that, Brian? Uh, sure. Um, okay, so a typical Hollywood film is uh, displayed at 24 frames per second. You have 24 individual pictures uh, that happen every second. A lot of times what happens in animation is... Instead of drawing a unique picture for every one of those 24 frames, you animate on twos. You throw two copies of the same image right next to each other, so your actual effective frame rate is only 12 frames per second. And you can get by with this if the action is not happening really fast. It's a a technique to save money. Even when you're doing computer animation, you still have rendering time, which costs you money. That's actually one of the things that I I complain about on uh, Netflix's The Dragon Prince, that oh, the frame rates are so low. I think they're like nine frames per second sometimes. It's just so choppy. And so what they were doing here was Peter Parker and Gwen were getting a unique frame uh, every frame of the show. So they were happening at 24 frames per second. Miles was variable. Um, When he was really feeling not very confident, um, the beginning when he was just getting used to his powers, he's being animated on fours a unique image only every four frames, so effectively six frames per second. And then as he becomes more confident, they speed him up. So they start rendering him uh, with unique images more often so that that helps things look smoother. 
And that's why he looks a little bit choppy and jumpy at the beginning of the movie and really smooth at the end. And the fact that they're doing this on a per-character basis is just weird and bizarre because, I mean, I don't even know what the, the animation scenes would look like in order to make that happen. Talk about taking care to look at something so small and minute, but a great way to portray a character's growth, their sudden and abrupt changes in life and gaining strength through them. I mean, wow. I, I mean, I knew none of this about the frame rates. I understand what you're talking about now as I look back on it, but learning that they purposely focused on that is just wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those, those little attention to details are all through this movie. And now, of course... Having said that, I can't think of anything specific. <laughs> uh, but things like uh, when the the group of the, the spider gang is all stuck to the ceiling and they're avoiding, is it Eugene? Is that the, uh, they never actually give his name, the roommate. And their particular <laughs> way that they're uh, stuck to the ceiling is actually shaped like a spider. You've got eight distinct limbs sticking out from this mass of them. Oh my um, gosh. <laughs> I never even thought like, of that. Yeah, and it's not obvious to look at it because you're looking at it and you're seeing all these people stuck up there. But then when the artists, they, they freeze it and they, they draw a little outline around it, like, oh my gosh, yeah, that's a spider. <laughs> and there's things like that all through the movie. Okay, we've talked about some of the technical aspects of Miles in his, in his growth. Do we want to talk a bit about his character growth at all? Uh, yes, we absolutely do. Yes. What struck me as the overall arc of the story is... Uh, Miles feeling trapped by the expectations that are being placed on him. He starts off wanting to, you know, to stay in his old school. He's reaching for mediocrity, uh, is how his, his dad would look at it, because he doesn't feel like he's worthy of all of the high expectations, the admiration that his parents have for him. He throws off that line, oh, I only got into the school because of the lottery, when in fact he's perfectly worthy of being there all of his teachers are telling him you're a smart kid you you can do this and they give him an the essay on great expectations and he responds immediately by shirking his responsibilities finding his uncle aaron and doing this big work of no expectations that's what he wants he doesn't want these expectations being placed on him and the movie his arc is about finding out that that desire for no expectations is a false desire He actually does want people to think well of him. He does want people to think that he's going to be doing something great. But he doesn't realize that until he gets to that point where the rest of the spider gang is saying, you know what, kid, you're not ready. And they leave him. And suddenly that's the thing that flips his switch and makes him realize, you know what, these expectations that I've been kicking against are really the thing that that I should be embracing. Mm -hmm. And you also have to take a look at the note of tragedy which had happened to him at that point because personal tragedy is a vital point in any spider-man story i mean Mm -hmm. after the loss of his of his uncle he's surrounded by the rest of them and they all tell him for me it was my uncle for me it was my best friend for me it was my father they all had someone who they had lost which was the turning point in their journey from someone normal into the hero that they are one of the things that i found remarkable about miles's journey is how unremarkable it was (laughs) i mean i've seen this story before i mean i think part of the point of into the spider verse is that yeah we've seen this spider-man journey before like two weeks before i saw into the spider verse i had just seen tom holland's spider-man far from home 
And he was struggling with this idea of just being a kid, not feeling quite up to filling such big shoes, generally having a very similar emotional resonances with feeling defeat and then rising again to the challenge. Yet again, when I saw this film, I didn't feel like I was rehashing Tom Holland's Spider-Man. They had so many similar emotional notes and so many emotional parallels yet they were still very distinctive Spider-Man narratives. And I thought that was brilliant that they could use something so familiar, yet still make it so distinct in Miles's journey. Yeah, and I think part of that is that uh, Holland's Peter Parker, his struggle, he was, he was wanting to get away from Spider-Man. He was refusing uh, the heroism. Miles never did that. From moment one, when Peter hands him the, the goober and says, you have to destroy that machine, he says, I promise. He never doubted the, the call to heroism it's the, for a moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doubted whether or not he'd be able to, but he never refused it like uh, Peter did in Far From Home. And even in the middle, he, he lost hope, but it wasn't because he wanted to do his own thing. It was just a reflection of, again, those expectations on him had been reduced and that's what caused him to deflate. But yeah, you're right. The the emotional beats were very similar. And I think a lot of people would really, probably really resonate with Miles of, you know, my parents always told me you're going to do great things. You're, you're such a great person. And you never really believe it. Spend a little time on Twitter and you find a thousand people talking about imposter syndrome. And I think that's something that we all understand. And having it on the screen like this shown so clearly Everybody understands what it feels like to be to be where Miles is. I mean, obviously not sticking to walls and having to blow up a super collider, but we all understand that feeling of not quite being adequate to what everybody else is expecting us to do. All right. Are there any of the other Spideys that we want to talk about in terms of their character development? I, I like the contrast between uh, Peter B. Parker and, I don't know, Peter A. Parker. I don't know. <laughs> We see the original Peter at the height of his power. Uh, he's totally in control. His life is is going great. Um, and then we immediately lose that character because he's got everything figured out. He's not interesting. Instead, mm-hmm. we, we substitute this broken Peter Parker who's lost all of the things that made him happy, lost all of the things that that really gave him his power. And being able to contrast those two and seeing what is it that that makes spider-man the hero that he is and it's that connection to the city it's this connection to mj um and when he lost that he lost what made him spider-man yeah one of the things that i was watching in my that i came away with in my first viewing i didn't so much see in the second viewing and i didn't know if i was infusing this in is peter b's desire to stay back and be the one who plugs in the goober. Was it ever explicitly said to him, like, no, your your duty is to go back. Like, you're you're trying to take basically the suicide way out, and we're not going to let you. Or I think that, did Miles ever say something to that effect, or did I? Was that just it's all never between ex- the lines? It's never explicitly said out loud, but he does it enough that it is pretty circumspect that they show in blaring detail how bad things are for him in his home dimension. So, I mean, he does seem pretty quick to say, I'll stay behind. I got this. I'm the one who has to do it. Well, then props to them for not making the subtext text. (laughs) Yeah. 
And it never really shows that he has a martyr complex. I never got that feel. I got more of the feel if someone has to stay behind, he feels that it's okay that it's him. Mm -hmm. Because he doesn't feel like he has anything to go back to. Right. Until he develops that relationship with Miles and realizes, you know what? Maybe having a kid wouldn't actually be such a horrible, scary thing. I think they even snuck a line in like that during mm-hmm. the fight scenes. Miles, yeah. I'm so proud. That was awesome. Wait, do I want do kids? Do I want kids? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What also helps is that he got a bit of closure with those small moments that he got with MJ, with this universe, MJ, and <laughs> with, with, yeah, with the bread. Bring yeah. you the bread that you deserve. <laughs> <laughs> so and awkward. It was wonderfully <laughs> awkward. And also seeing Aunt May one more time. And I'm going to admit when mm, yeah. when they were standing outside the house, I'm like, wait, who are they there to see? And when it was Aunt May that opened the door, I had a moment. I'm like, stupid cartoons almost making me cry again. <laughs> yeah, because I got emotional. I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah, there was no almost about it with me. <laughs> <laughs> but once again, it just shows it doesn't matter if it's a cartoon or if live actors. It was just a really well done scene. Yeah. I really love Peter B's asides to himself. It really helped, again, without making things too explicit, but especially the, oh, it looks like I have to re-examine my stereotypes or (laughs) re-examine my preconceived notions. Like, that's just the little things that he's doing as he's shifting his head and shifting it. It was just brilliant. Mm -hmm. And they're very in keeping with Spider-Man's character because he does that in the comics. He's yeah. He's talking to the audience, but he's talking to himself because the audience doesn't exist. And in right. keeping with that character, I love that they made pretty much almost every version of Spider-Man, especially the two Peters, they made him smarmy and more than a little sarcastic at times. And that <laughs> is part of the essence of who Spider-Man is. One other character that I want to touch on just briefly, and I, this was kind of a, a late addition to the notes, um, but uh, the uncle, Aaron... Because we talked about Miles' relationship to his parents and how when he's trying to get out from under those expectations, he goes and he finds his his uncle who's, we don't get his whole story, but I get the the feeling that he was always the shirker, the one taking the easy easy way out, um, the one always failing to live up to the expectations. And he's, he's encouraging to Miles, but everything that he says is always filtered through his own ego. Because uh, when he's talking about, or when Miles is talking about having trouble talking to a girl, he's like, "Are you sure you're related to me?" And then he turns mm. that around. It's like when they go down and they're they're doing the arts. Like, oh yeah, yeah, you're my you're my nephew. And it's like he's never praising Miles just for being Miles. It's always filtered through his own ego, appropriating Miles' own identity for himself. I never caught that. So me neither. But it's a good point, and it makes sense, especially for the character. Mm-hmm. Once again, I just should start a list things to watch out for in my next watch. <laughs> well, I, I actually do that every time I, I watch one of these movies and then I start writing my notes like, oh, I should watch out for that next time so that when I go back and watch it again, I can pay more attention to stuff that I thought I maybe might have seen the first time through. I've started doing a reading journal and we're going to have Brian starting to do a film journal, which <laughs> actually not a bad idea. Yeah, that's not a bad idea, actually. Talking about girls, like, are you sure it related to me? I thought it's such a contrast to the scene where when Gwen does finally show up as Spider-Woman, takes the mask off, she's like, hi, guys. And Miles like, Gwen? And Peter B. is like, you know her. 
Very nice. (laughs) (laughs) I just made me laugh. Her introduction, it's like, Wanda, why is she trying to disguise her own name? She's from a different universe. Yeah. (laughs) I was going to say, I think maybe we should talk a little bit about her story arc. There's not as much there. I mean, she's um, really kind of, she's really kind of a foil to two miles because she is she's his peer but still a fully developed spidey mm-hmm. yeah she has a very a very short small arc to go through of learning how to have a friend again and realizing that the strength isn't going to come from being entirely on her own like she thought it was she does have a very a very common Spidey arc where there is this idea mm-hmm. of personal attachment and there's this fear that this personal attachment is going to have negative consequences. So we just close that down. Mm-hmm. But she seems to come to the other side of that with Miles. Yeah. And again, that's a, an emotional journey that is familiar to me too, that if you don't love, you don't have anything to lose. Yeah. Yeah. Personally, I'm just ecstatic that they included her in this movie because the character spider Gwen, obviously she's an alternate version, Gwen Stacy who lived and I think she just made her comic debut not that long ago, like within the past five or six years. So I was for, thinking she was older than that. Oh really? Okay. Maybe she is. I just thought it was within the past five or six years, but in comic terms being relatively new, the fact that they, included her and she's so fully realized and fleshed out she deserved to be in here and hey probably deserves her own solo movie let's be frank i would watch that film same nope i'm wrong she was uh, introduced in 2014 and got her own book in 2015 hmm. very cool oh, well, that's pretty recent it must be that when gwen stacy is an older character than yes that. oh yeah gwen stacy has been in the in the canon for a long long time oh yeah she died in the 70s or something like that i think Oh, maybe. Oh, this is this is comic. She's probably died more than once. (laughs) (laughs) And even though they're fun characters, I don't feel like there's a lot that we can say on the other three spider entities, (laughs) other than they were unique, they were interesting. They each were based on various spider characters throughout the comic series: Spider Pig, the anime Spider Girl, and her robot. And my favorite of the three, of course, being Noir Spider-Man, voiced <laughs> perfectly by Nick Cage. Like, and okay. it's that minor infatuation that he has with the Rubik's Cube. Oh. <laughs> I absolutely loved this color here. This is blue. No, that's red. <sighs> I'm taking this with me. I don't that understand it, but one day I will. That was amazing. That was amazing. And I have to say, I am... I am tired of Nick Cage. I'm sorry. (laughs) I understand if there are those of you out there who who love this actor, everyone's entitled to their... I'm not going to yuck your yum. I'm not going to tell you what you should like. Personally, I am tired of seeing him on on screen. But he was so right for this character. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought that his voice acting was just spot on for this film. I... It was a brilliant casting choice. His introduction was perfect. Wait, is his is his coat moving? <laughs> Where's that wind coming from? We're underground. We're underground. <laughs> Wherever I go, the wind follows. 
I'm like, oh, that's perfect. I can't wait to see more of him. <laughs> I don't feel like we have quite as much development as we have with some of the other villains, but do we want to do we want to discuss any of their appearances or uh, any of their character development? The only one I feel like we should touch on maybe for a moment would be his uncle Aaron. Did we just do Aaron? Oh, we, we did an Aaron a little bit. We did him a little bit. <laughs> okay. We did talk about how he, Brian believes that, you know, I agree completely, that he does frame his relationship with Miles through himself first, but was not expecting that he would be the tragedy that is so often a part of, well, pretty much always is a part of the Spider-Man origin. There was tragedy even with, with Fisk's uh, representation in this film. Because he was, I mean, the entire motivation for the destructive force in this was a, was a narcissist notion of getting his family back. Like, he's motivated by love. I mean, it's a sick, twisted love that is completely unable to internalize any sort of outside conception of what will and what will not work. Like, he doesn't care, not that so much that he doesn't care that it would tear the universe apart, just that because he wants this to work he is unwilling to hear any criticism of it. And it's his family that he wants. Uh, I thought that was that tragedy motivating him to, to motivate this the further destruction, I thought was a fascinating take on the character rather than just having somebody who was wanton and destructive for the sake of being wanton and destructive. And my eldest child, when we were watching it, why, asked, why is he drawn like that? Why do they choose to make him like that why his head is in the middle of his chest. Well, it's funny because even in one scene, they get a super close-up on Fisk. And so you see his face, but his entire body fills up the entire screen. And they removed all other features and textures. So it's just this face. And his bulk eclipses the rest of the camera. And I thought that was a fascinating way of giving the audience this overwhelming, oppressive, I don't want to say larger than life, that just seems <laughs> a little too cliche, but just, that's no moon, that's a space station of a villain. <laughs> You're not right. wrong. There yeah. are a couple places where his henchman, he's like crowding his own henchman out of the out of the edge of the frame. I don't know what that guy's name is, the kind of zombie looking dude, is just visible in this little triangular sliver between the edge of the, the screen and Kingpin's bulk in a couple places. Yeah, this universe did seem to have a couple of oversized, exaggerated villains, both in the Kingpin, uh, the size of the Scorpion, and the fact that the Green Goblin was about four stories tall. <laughs> I also thought it was interesting that when uh, Doc Ock shows up at the house, May says, oh, great, it's Liv. Yeah, my friends call me Liv. <laughs> <laughs> that was perfect. <laughs> like, just that the small implication of a pre, pre-existing relationship and an awareness of who she is, I thought that was really good. And the tiredness of her voice, like, oh, I'm so tired of dealing with you. <laughs> yeah, I think that's another brilliant choice, but it shows that there was history without feeling the need to explain something that you didn't need to explain. Mm-hmm. And the same goes with the relationship between Aaron and Jeff, that there's very clearly some bad blood. There's, there's an argument that happened at some point. It doesn't really matter to the story as it stands, so we don't get it, but it's there and we can feel it. 
So did we have any other uh, comments on the characters? I've got nothing. Is there anything that we crowded out? Anything that we can loop back to? I feel like we've uh, covered everything. Yeah. Oh, gosh, the music. Agreed. uh, What was the the song that was playing when in the montage with Miles finally coming into his own? That whole scene is just marvelous. Oh, I know there's a line that goes, what's up, danger? Yeah. That whole scene is amazing. Yeah, they, again, like pretty much every other part of this film, the music never misses a beat. It is always just perfectly resonates in the scene. <laughs> and opening with him not knowing the name of the song he's trying to sing is just so awesome. <laughs> and it's a very teenage thing, too, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's a very me thing, because I'm the same way with that song. It's like, I don't know what they're singing, but I like the music. <laughs> yeah. You know, more movies could take notes off of, uh, or more directors and studios need to take notes from movies like this and Guardians of the Galaxy. Pay attention to the music that you put in and when you put it in, because mm-hmm. it makes a big difference. And when you get it right, it just makes the movie so much better. I feel like my cat really wants to be part of this podcast. He is like, I'm trying to keep him <laughs> off of the mic. Now he's standing on me trying to get to the mic. Meow. Well, he can't hear you through my head. Maybe he can. He's going after the headphones now. Well, Tad Cooper, what do you think of the movie? Honestly, tell us. Yeah, that's him most of the time. (laughs) It sounds like uh, we've said everything that we have to say about Into the Spider-Verse. Yep. But before we wrap this episode up, do we have any final thoughts on Into the Spider-Verse as a whole? Nope. Besides the fact that all three of us will probably watch it again in the next couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, I just, yeah, we'll watch again. Well, then that will wrap up the final movie in our animated film club series. We haven't really talked about what film club will do next, but I think we ought to keep it going. I really enjoy doing it. I think our listeners do too. So uh, we'll have a discussion soon about what the next one will be. Uh, But before we close this episode out, something I meant to do earlier, uh, guys, pop quiz. I'm ready. What are your top three favorite movie or TV show soundtracks? Oh, that's not hard. (laughs) I mean, if we're going with top three, I mean, I would probably have to say. Not the ones that you think are the best ones. But we've talked so much on this podcast about, and we just did again, about how music is such an important and integral part of the movie. And how if it's done bad, it's going to make the movie horrible. If it's done just okay, then the movie's going to stay mediocre. But if it's done well, if it's done really well, it can raise a movie up to new heights. So, oh, so you're talking about not for your listening pleasure sitting on your armchair at home. You're talking about integration into the film. Not necessarily. I was just using that as an example of how important it is. I just want to know what your top three favorite movie soundtracks are. I mean, all of mine are Star Wars. Let me put in an addendum. Honestly, I could fill out my top three with Star Wars and Lord of the Rings soundtracks. Let's put those aside. Those have their own special category. So... Top three favorite movie soundtracks that are not Star Wars or Lord of the Rings related. All right. You know, I, I veto. Um, I'm, 
<laughs> I'm going to use Star Wars <laughs> as one. Okay, that's fair. I'll, that's I'll, fair. I'll, okay, count for one. Um, because I will, I will actually use that as my as my commute listening when I'm riding my bike, and I don't wear headphones because I don't really show any other uh, warning signs of suicide. And if you're riding in traffic. <laughs> You don't want <laughs> headphones. I see people who do it, and I'm like, oh, I will pray for you and all that you are hurting in your life that you want this to happen to you. But um, I will have a Bluetooth speaker, and sometimes I have a commute playlist and where you're just taking some of the best actioniest uh, sections of the original trilogy. And it is really funny how often I will be biking through traffic in a either a fellow cyclist or one of the pedestrians like, oh, yeah, Star Wars. And I'm like, yeah, because when I've got this, everything looks like an asteroid field. This is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> and when it's snowing, he's like, warp speed. And what, what's funny is that when I'm playing the Death Star Escape and TIE Fighter Attack, and you have the music is building into when you have like the, the strings and winds with that ramping up the tension until the moment when the fighters you know, just break on in. And when you're sitting at a stoplight as it's building the tension and building the tension and building the tension, and the light turns green just at the right moment, it's like, yes! <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to have to say that it's probably it's probably going to be uh, Star Wars, and uh, I love the Braveheart soundtrack, and I thought that it worked. I haven't watched the film in years, but at the time I thought that it so wonderfully hit the emotional tones of that historical atrocity. And probably Dark City. I don't listen to it hmm. independently as often, but I, I do absolutely love the nightclub uh, music. And it's a very different style of music than I generally listen to. But especially if I'm doing some action-y, game-y things. Sometimes I'll turn the video game music off and sometimes play segments of the Dark City soundtrack in the background. I'm thinking Once Upon a Time in the West by Ennio Marconi, The Matrix, yes, and John Williams' Superman score. Oh, that's one of the best. Oh, yeah. One of the absolute best. So right back at you, James. What's your pick? Uh, I'm going to agree with you on one of yours, Mike, with uh, Braveheart. They released two Braveheart soundtrack CDs. I had both of them, and I just about wore out my CD player. I have both of those, yeah. And, But also, I have so many Star Wars CDs in my collection, and I just listen <laughs> to them all the time. And Lord of the Rings as well. There's so much great music. I think my favorite Lord of the Rings song that I could just listen to sometimes on repeat are to the theme of Rohan. Mm. I just that is so good, so good. The Khazad Doom that's my is has got to be one of my favorites on that. Yes, on absolutely. That. But Star Wars and Lord of the Rings aside, Braveheart. Another one of my favorites is Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Oh yeah. I'm trying to remember who did that one. I don't think that was a John Williams. No, um, it wasn't Williams. It was composed and orchestrated by Michael Kamen, who is not a name I know readily, but he's done a lot. But it, to me, it's one of the best soundtracks I've ever heard. And it was good enough that that studio used it for uh, all of their trailers for about three years afterward. <laughs> they, occasionally, I still hear it mm -hmm. during opening credits for a specific studio. But those two, and my third favorite is the soundtrack to Tron Legacy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That one was good. That was right. It was well known 
that the the score was composed by the electronic group Daft Punk, mm-hmm. and it fits perfectly. I've got the entire soundtrack, and I was listening to it just the other day, and I'm still. I've always been upset that we never got a sequel to that movie. I mean, it came out in 2010, but not just because I really enjoyed the story, but I'm also upset we didn't get more music. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what? I think that they could just go ahead and do a a movie sequel soundtrack and don't bother with the movie. I think that's fine. I'd be okay with that. <laughs> Tron 3 soundtrack, even though there is no Tron 3 film. Oh, gosh. I'm fine. And they'll name each track like they were naming a scene, and it'll be such a huge tease. Oh, but, but confrontation on the digital bridge. What does that mean? Oh, what what, what would that have looked like? I think that's a real... No, I think that we should definitely do this. Yeah, let's, let's commission Daft Punk and buy out <laughs> Disney, and yeah, we'll make this happen. <laughs> Solely for that reason. <laughs> All right. Well, guys, I think that will lead us to our zombie apocalypse plan of the week. Mike, how are we going to survive this time? All right. Uh, well, this time, I'd say that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And survival is not always a given. So everyone needs to get on board and wear Hannibal Lecter-style muzzle masks. That way, if they <laughs> do happen to get a hold of you, you're not going to be part of the problem. Once we've got the spread prevented, then the rest is all clean up. And sorry if I'm taking you out as a result. <laughs> So I guess yeah, all food right. in the future will be soup-based? Uh, you know, <laughs> as I... Oh, no, I didn't say. Now, well, you know, I, I think that we can't overlook the quality of a good puree soup. So I'm not going no. to last long in the future. Then, you know what? It's because you have never had my, my immersion-blended spinach soup. James, if you had that soup, you would never have anything like it ever again. Probably because, because you I would, hate I, it. I mean, yeah. Because no, it, it would it, it would strip away my taste buds, or it would kill me. No, just because you wouldn't like it. You know, immersion blended spinach <laughs> and a potato and even some tofu. Hey, I like it, but I mean, no, you're 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 not living through that if all you've got is my spinach soup. <laughs> Probably not. All right, everyone. I think that will wrap up this episode. I want to thank you all for listening in, and make sure you check us out online at geekatarms.com, on Facebook at facebook.com slash geekatarms, and Mike, what's our Twitter handle? We are armsgeek at Twitter. And finally, from Brian, Mike, and James, be safe, be blessed, and be geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com. For more, check us out at facebook.com forward slash geek at arms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome.